This is VOA News, reporting via remote. I'm Richard Green. Russia's state-run news agency said Wednesday the commander of its Crimea-based Black Sea Fleet has been replaced after a series of explosions rocked the peninsula. Moscow blames saboteurs for blast that engulfed an ammunition depot in northern Crimea on Tuesday. Ukraine has not officially taken responsibility for the attacks. Crimea, which was annexed by Russia in 2014, had previously been seen as a secure rear base for its war in Ukraine. The apparent Ukrainian capability to strike deeper into Russian-occupied territory, either with some form of weapon or with sabotage, indicates a shift in the conflict. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres will meet with the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan in Ukraine on Thursday. Ukrainian grain exports and concern about attacks on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant will top the agenda. The trilateral meeting marks Erdogan's first in-person discussion with Zelensky since the start of the Russian invasion on February 24th, although the Turkish leader has met with Russian President Vladimir Putin twice in recent months. The three leaders will hold a joint news conference after their meetings in Lviv, an important transit point for Ukrainian refugees heading west to Europe since the invasion. Guterres plans to visit the Black Sea port of Odessa on Friday, where grain exports have resumed under a U.N.-brokered deal aimed at easing a worsening global food crisis. Meanwhile, the first wartime shipment of U.N. food aid for Africa reached the Bosphorus Strait on Wednesday under the deal. Turkish Coast Guards expected the Lebanese flag cargo vessel to reach the Sea of Mamara on the Strait's southern edge late on Wednesday before sailing to its final destination in Djibouti next week. The grain will then be loaded for delivery to war and famine-stricken Ethiopia under the U.N. World Food Program. This is VOA News. A judge in the southwestern U.S. state of New Mexico orders a suspect held in the killings of four Muslim men detained pending trial. AP correspondent Walter Ratliff reports. A judge has ruled an Afghan refugee charged in the shooting deaths of two Muslim men and suspected in the killings of two others will stay in jail without bond until his trial. Prosecutors called him a dangerous man, saying no conditions of release would ensure the community's safety. 51-year-old Mohammed Syed has denied any involvement in the killings that shook New Mexico's Muslim community. Police say they received more than 200 tips, and one from the Muslim community led to his arrest. I'm Walter Ratliff. Kenyan President-elect William Ruto says his campaign will engage in any court challenge to the election results as the country awaits a likely petition from losing candidate Rayla Odinga. Ruto, Kenya's deputy president, was declared the winner of last week's close election on Monday. Odinga, an opposition leader seeking the presidency in his fifth attempt, said his campaign will pursue all constitutional and legal options to challenge the election results. They have seven days from Monday's declaration to file at the Supreme Court, which then has 14 days to rule on it. The election was rightly described by Kenyans and independent observers as more transparent and peaceful than ever. An article that discussed female obesity in the Middle East has been slammed by critics on social media as sexist and an attempt to fat shame Arab women. AP correspondent Karen Shamas reports. 
The article in London-based magazine The Economist was entitled Why Women Are Fatter Than Men in the Arab World. The article ran through possible explanations of the obesity gap of 10 percentage points between men and women in the Middle East. Fat, a word now considered taboo in much of Western media, was repeated six times. The author used the example of the curves of Iraqi actress Enas Talib as the Middle Eastern ideal of beauty. Talib is now suing the magazine for defamation. Many critics on social media were appalled by what they described as demeaning stereotypes about Arab women. I'm Karen Chamas. Recapping our top story, Russian state-run news agency said Wednesday the commander of its Crimea-based Black Sea Fleet has been replaced after a series of explosions rocked the peninsula. Moscow blamed saboteurs for blasts that engulfed an ammunition depot in northern Crimea on Tuesday. Ukraine has not officially taken responsibility for the attacks. Crimea, which was annexed by Russia in 2014, had previously been seen as a secure rear base for its war in Ukraine. You can find more on this story on our website, voanews.com. Reporting via remote, I'm Richard Green for VOA News. Today is Thursday, August 18th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedorfo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, Ukraine expands war into Russia occupied Crimea as Kremlin forces pound the Odessa region. Today, over the night, it was an attack by Russian forces on the Odessa region and, to be more precise, on the village of Zatoka. And Zatoka is one of the main touristic destinations. South Korea's president said he wants closer relations with Japan to face common threats in the region. Yoon Suk-yul said, Today, Japan is our partner as we face common threats that challenge the freedom of global citizens. And bombing at a mosque in Kabul during evening prayers kills at least 10 people, including a prominent cleric. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. A spate of explosions and fires has turned Russia-occupied Crimea from a secure rear base into a new battleground in the war, demonstrating both the Russia's vulnerability and the Ukrainians' capacity to strike deep behind enemy lines. Nine Russian warplanes were reportedly destroyed at an air base in Crimea last week, and an ammunition depot on the peninsula blew up Tuesday. Ukraine says Russian forces continued firing upon the Odessa region, destroying a recreational center and several private buildings. From Kyiv, Anna Chernikova shares the latest updates on the ground with Flashpoint Ukraine's Steve Miller. Day over the night, it was an attack by Russian forces on the Odessa region and, to be more precise, on the village of Zatoka. And Zatoka is one of the main touristic destinations in Odessa region, always been. But after the annexation of Crimea, it became even more. So it's huge and very important touristic destination in Ukraine in general. And today we hear reports that seven buildings were destroyed in the recreation center in Zatoka. And this is in addition to 15 
private buildings that were damaged. Currently, officials of the region are reporting about four injured citizens, but rescue operation is ongoing, so the number might change and we might get more details and more information later on. I also want to follow up with you because there were reports from both Russian authorities and Ukrainian authorities about those explosions that were taking place in Crimea. What have we learned since then? In general, what we hear that Russian forces accuse Ukrainian forces in sabotage when we talk about yesterday accidents in Jankoy and next to Simferopol. According to Saki, the first attack that happened a bit earlier, Russian forces just reported that it was an explosion inside and they didn't specifically provide any details on that. So they're just claiming it was a fire inside because of certain not correct actions by the staff. But Ukrainian forces put it quite clear that Crimea is considered by Ukraine as a territory of Ukraine. And yesterday, the head of president administration office, Mr. Yermak, said that Ukrainian forces will definitely work on liberating all territories. But today, we received British intelligence report on these attacks. And according to British intelligence, they say that Jankoy, together with Gvardiyske, which is next to Simferopol, are home to two of the most important Russian military airfields in Crimea. And Jankoy in particular is also a key road and rail hub that plays an important role in supporting Russian operation in southern Ukraine. So basically, British intelligence claiming that these two places are basically the key of Russian operations in southern Ukraine. And they also say that after the recent explosions in the occupied Crimea, the command of the Russian Federation is most most likely to be pretty much concerned about the obvious deterioration of security on the peninsula. That's reporter Anna Janikova speaking from Kyiv with Flashpoint Ukraine, Steve Miller. South Korea's president says he wants closer relations with Japan to face common threats in the region. As Henry Ridgewell reports from Tokyo, the change of approach has been welcomed in Japan, but overcoming historical mistrust may prove difficult. Marking the 77th anniversary Monday of his country's liberation from Japanese rule and the end of World War II, South Korea's president called for better relations with Japan. Yoon Suk-yul said, Today, Japan is our partner as we face common threats that challenge the freedom of global citizens. When Korea-Japan relations move toward a common future and when the mission of our times align based on our shared universal values, it will also help us solve the historical problems. Those historical problems have long weighed on relations between Seoul and Tokyo. The two countries dispute the ownership of islands in the Sea of Japan. South Korea wants greater atonement from Japan for its conduct during colonial rule, including the use of forced sex slaves known as comfort women during World War II. Speaking on the anniversary of his country's surrender in 1945, Japan's Prime Minister said he would uphold Japan's constitutional pledge to never again repeat the horrors of war. Fumio Kishida said, in a world where conflicts are still unabated, Japan, under the banner of proactive pacifism, will do its utmost to work together with the international community 
to resolve the various challenges facing the world. Alongside U.S. forces conducting military drills, Japan and South Korea took part in missile intercept exercises off Hawaii earlier this month. It is a tentative step forward, says Japanese defense analyst Kunihiko Miyake. The tripartite cooperation is not a big problem for us and for, for them, as long as the Americans are there. But when it comes to bilateral relationships, bilateral whatever activities between South Korea and Japan, probably that could be, uh, that would cause a domestic political uh, problem for them. Japan and South Korea see common threats in the region, but with different perspectives, says Miyake. Probably uh, the Americans and South Koreans are in sync with each other as far as the threat from uh, North Korea uh, is imminent. And I, I agree with that. But the question is, when it comes to China, uh, South Korea is not, do not feel, doesn't feel as we do. See, we are facing a land power threat from the continent to the waters in our part of the world. Despite the common threats, analysts say it will be difficult for South Korea and Japan to overcome decades of mistrust. Japanese government ministers were among those visiting Tokyo's controversial Yasukuni Shrine Monday, which honours Japan's war dead, including several convicted war criminals. South Korea urged Japan to show humble reflection on its past. Henry Ridgewell for VOA News, Tokyo. Thank you, Henry. Since evacuating tens of thousands of Afghan allies following the U.S. withdrawal from the country a year ago, the State Department has been tasked with determining how to provide humanitarian aid to Afghans living under the Taliban during a serious food shortage. VOA senior diplomatic correspondent Cindy Sain provides an update. Human rights groups and relief agencies say the situation for the Afghan people is a catastrophe, with some selling their organs or their children to survive. One year after withdrawing American troops and diplomats, the United States is still the single largest donor of humanitarian aid to the country. Fareshta Abbasi is the Afghanistan researcher for Human Rights Watch. She spoke to VOA via Skype. According to the latest statistics that the World Food Program have published, um, 90% of um, Afghan people are facing food insecurity. One year after the Taliban takeover, people are dying out of hunger. Um, it means that people do not have anything to eat. <laughs> The Taliban celebrated as they marked one year Monday since they retook power from the U.S.-backed government in Kabul, saying they are seeking strong political and economic relationships with all the countries of the region and the world. But the Biden administration is questioning the Taliban's assurances, pointing to last month's killing of fugitive al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri in a U.S. drone strike at his safe house in the heart of Kabul. State Department spokesperson Ned Price said the Biden administration is not ready in the near term to release the funds held in the United States back to Afghanistan's central bank, 
but it has been negotiating with the bank for months to try to find a solution. Uh, so right now we're looking at mechanisms uh, that could be put in place uh, to see to it uh, that these $3.5 billion in, in preserved as- assets uh, make their way efficiently and effectively uh, to the people of Afghanistan in a way that uh, doesn't make them ripe for uh, diversion to terrorist groups or elsewhere. Experts tell VOA the fact that the al-Qaeda leader was living right in the middle of Kabul with his family dealt a blow to efforts to release the assets. Michael Kugelman of the Woodrow Wilson Center spoke to VOA via Skype. Now, I think that um, in light of what happened with Zawahiri, the U.S. is going to take an even harder line. and They will not agree to any type of arrangement to release those funds back to Afghan control unless there is a clear mechanism in place, presumably some type of separate trust fund that would wall off the funds from whatever the Taliban would try to do. The Taliban is going to take a hard line, too. The Taliban, you know, for political reasons, it has to ensure the legitimacy of its rank and file. Experts, including Abbasi, say the international community, including the United States, certainly needs to step up humanitarian aid to Afghan civilians. But they are also calling on the Taliban to reconsider their priorities and address people's basic needs instead of putting more restrictions on women's rights in Afghanistan. Cindy Sane, VOA News. Former U.S. Vice President Mike Pence says he would consider speaking with the Congressional Committee investigating the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. This story from VOA's chief national correspondent Steve Herman in Washington. Speaking at an event hosted by the New England Council in the state of New Hampshire, Mike Pence was asked about the possibility of him testifying before the January 6th House Select Committee. Any invitation to be directed to me, I would have to reflect on the the unique role that I was serving in as vice president. Previous committee testimony has discussed then-President Donald Trump's attempts to persuade Pence to delay or block congressional certification of Trump's Electoral College defeat. Pence, at Wednesday's event in a state frequently visited by presidential aspirants, also called on his fellow members of the Republican Party to end their verbal attacks on federal law enforcement agencies over the FBI's recent search of Trump's home in the state of Florida. Steve Herman, VOA News, Washington. In other news, an Afghan resident and police say that a bombing at a mosque in Kabul during evening prayers killed at least 10 people, including a prominent cleric, and wounded at least 27. There was no immediate claim of responsibility for Wednesday's attack, the latest to strike the country in the years since the Taliban seized power. A resident of the city's Kharkana neighborhood said the mosque explosion was carried out by a suicide bomber. He added that more than 30 other people were wounded. The Italian emergency hospital in Kabul said that at least 27 wounded civilians, including five children, were brought there from the bombing site. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You're listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinerofo in Washington. The Director General of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, said yesterday that Ethiopia's conflict-ridden province of Tigray is the worst humanitarian and man-made disaster on Earth. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. 
The WHO chief says more than 6 million people in Tigray have been under siege by Ethiopia and Eritrea for nearly two years. He says they have been sealed off from the outside world with no electricity, no banking services, and only limited fuel supplies. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus says a trickle of food aid and medicine has been reaching the beleaguered northern province since a truce between the Ethiopian government and Tigray rebel forces was declared in late March. He says the population is still facing multiple outbreaks of diseases, including malaria, anthrax, and cholera. Nowhere in the world you would see this level of cruelty, where it's a government punishes six million of its people for more than 21 months by denying them basic services. The 57-year-old Tedros is not a neutral observer of the Tigray conflict. He is a native of the region, served as a Tigray regional health official in the early 2000s, and he later spent more than a decade in the Ethiopian government, first as Minister of Health, then as Minister of Foreign Affairs. Tedros notes peace talks for the Tigray conflict are ongoing. However, he says they are leading nowhere because powerful countries in the developed world are not using their influence to make this happen. He says all eyes are focused on the tragedy unfolding in Ukraine to the detriment of the tragedy playing out in Tigray. The humanitarian crisis in Tigray is more than Ukraine, without any exaggeration. And I said it many months ago, maybe the reason is the color of the skin of the people in Tigray. The only thing we're asking is, can the world come back to its senses and uphold humanity? WHO Chief Tedros says he is appealing to the Ethiopian government to resolve the conflict in Tigray peacefully. He says the government has the power to do this, adding the ball is in the government's hands. Tedros says he also is appealing to the Russian government to end the war in Ukraine and choose peace. He says both the Ethiopian and Russian governments can make peace happen if they choose to do so. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Kenya's president-elect William Ruto has called for unity to move the country forward despite his main rival's rejection of the recent election outcome. Ruto, who is also the deputy president, has challenged elected leaders to work for the people. Mohamed Yusuf reports. Speaking to Kenya Kwanzaa Alliance of 12 political parties, William Ruto said he was going to be the president of all Kenyans. I want to say from the onset, there will be no room for exclusion of any part of the Republic of Kenya. We are going to govern in a manner that makes sure that no part of Kenya is left behind. No sector of Kenya is left behind. No community of Kenya is left behind. We're going to move together as a nation because the people of Kenya are already telling us that we need to change the politics of our nation and eliminate ethnicity. Ruto spoke a day after his main competitor, Raila Odinga, rejected Ruto's win, calling it null and void. Odinga said he would challenge the outcome through legal and constitutional means. Ruto, the deputy president, received just over 50% of the vote in last week's presidential election. Odinga won just under 49%. Ruto said he will defend his win. If there will be court processes, we will 
uh, engage in those and make sure that we, because we are Democrats and we believe in the rule of law. The results also split the country's electoral commission after some members complained of a lack of transparency in the tallying process. The dispute has raised fears Kenya may see violence of the kind that has happened after other elections. Odinga Camp has until Sunday to submit its case to the Kenyan Supreme Court to determine whether the just-concluded election was free, fair and credible. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. This is Science in a Minute. NASA's Artemis One mission took a big step forward on August 17th at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time when its Space Launch System rocket, with the Orion spacecraft sitting atop, arrived at Launch Complex 39B at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. While the Artemis One mission, scheduled to launch to the moon no earlier than August 29th, will be uncrewed, it will carry special mannequins and a host of science experiments. One of these moonikins, as NASA calls them, is a full-bodied male figure that will occupy the commander's seat in the Orion spacecraft and wear the same spacesuit future Artemis astronauts will wear. Two female-bodied model human torsos will be in the other two crew seats. Special sensors will be attached to the figures to gather data that will help the space agency plan for future crewed missions. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. Why have former President Donald Trump and allies criticized the FBI's search of his Florida residence? It was Mr. Trump who unlawfully removed sensitive documents from the White House, some of which highly classified, and failed to return them by less invasive means. We'll talk with presidential historian Alan Lichtman about the national security implications and the politics surrounding this event. That's Press Conference USA this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and our panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including President Joe Biden signs the Democrats' massive climate, health, and tax bill into law, marking a major accomplishment for his domestic agenda less than three months before midterm elections. Join us for Issues in the News this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. And to all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Chinodorfo in Washington. Have a great day.
Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The United States joined the host of nations and organizations expressing outrage at the executions of four political activists by Burma's military regime. The United States condemns in the strongest terms the Burma military regime's executions of pro-democracy activists and elected leaders Ko Jimmy, Fayuze Taw, Hia Myo Ong, and Ong Thura for the exercise of their fundamental freedoms, said Secretary of State Antony Blinken in a written statement. He noted that since the February 2021 coup in Burma, the regime has perpetuated violence against its own people, killing more than 2,100, displacing more than 700,000, and detaining thousands of innocent people, including members of civil society and journalists. The executions of the four activists occurred after proceedings before a military-controlled court. At a press briefing, State Department spokesperson Ned Price described the executions as a heinous affront to human rights, and he called on all partners and allies to join us in condemning the regime's actions and stepping up pressure on the regime and its supporters. There can be no business as usual with this regime, he said. We urge all countries to ban the sale of military equipment to Burma, to refrain from lending the regime any decree of international credibility, and we call on ASEAN to maintain its important precedent of only allowing Burmese non-political representation at regional events. Spokesperson Price said all options are on the table to cut off the regime's revenue and its ability to perpetuate violence. He added the United States will work with partners to make sure additional steps are coordinated in order to put maximum pressure on the regime and not on the Burmese people. As Secretary of State Blinken stated, the United States joins the people of Burma in their pursuit of freedom and democracy and calls on the regime to respect the democratic aspirations of the people who have shown they do not want to live one more day under the tyranny of military rule. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 